Jodcast, a fast radio burst full of astronomy, with George Bendo, John Field, Stuart Harper, Mel Irfan, Ian Morrison, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, August 2013 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Mark and presenting with me today are Mel and George. Hi. Hello. In the show this time, we have Dan Thornton talking about fast radio bursts. We find out what you can see in the night sky this month in the northern and southern hemispheres and we round up some odds and ends from the world of astronomy. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Stuart Harper. This month in the news, disks of dust and galactic winds. Disks of debris are observable around approximately 15% of stars. Early in the lifetime of a star, the debris disk will be a flat plane filled with ice, rocks and gas that stretch out from the star to the outer edge of the solar system. The speed at which the material moves slows down the further out from the star you travel. At the very edge, everything moves so slowly that they very rarely collide. Collisions within the debris disk are vital for planets to form, and if this does not occur, then you are left with a belt around the star containing lots of small comets, asteroids and meteors, much like our own sun's Kuiper belt. For testing theories of planet formation, debris disks like the Kuiper belt could potentially contain a significant amount of information about the planets that can be seen and not seen around a distant star. For example, as mentioned earlier, debris disks start out filled with ice, rocks and gas, but within 10 million years, all the gas will disappear due to either being absorbed by the host star or expelled out of the solar system by powerful winds from the star. The disappearance of gas is important because it places a limit on how long gas-rich planets like Jupiter have to form, because if they take longer than 10 million years, there simply would not be any of the gas left to make them. Debris disks can also give us a method of estimating the mass of Jupiter-type planets. As the planets pass near to the debris disk, their enormous mass causes waves to form. The size of the waves are therefore related to the mass of the passing planet. This is how the mass of the nearby planet orbiting the star, Fummelhort, was estimated to be up to three times the mass of Jupiter. A pair of theoretical exoplanet scientists have been studying the motion of the waves within the debris disk around Fummelhort and have found that they are difficult to explain via gravitational interactions of the orbiting Jupiter-like planet. Instead, they have found that some debris disks around other stars still contain a small but significant amount of gas after the first 10 million years. No such detection has yet been made for Fommelhort debris disk, but if it was present, they think that the waves could be explained by the interactions between the small amount of gas and the dust, which they say means the influence of the planet on producing waves in the disk is minimal. Although this means that the measurement for the mass of the Jupiter-type planet around Fommelhort may be wrong. In the end, it is a nothing but a positive for planet formation theories, as whether there is gas or there is no gas, we have a model which can predict either outcome. Throughout a galaxy's lifetime, it is constantly being moulded and carved by powerful galactic winds. The age of the stars within the galaxy, its size and even its overall shape, be it spherical, a disk or anything else, are all defined by the galactic wind which rages between the space between the stars. In the early times, the galactic wind is driven by violent ejections of mass from unstable massive stars. Then, later, by supernovae which carve out huge bubbles of hot ionised material, sometimes with such ferocity that the material escapes the galaxy altogether. The other force that drives the galactic wind is found at the core of every galaxy a supermassive black hole which consumes stars and launches the leftover gas and dust away at near the speed of light. Understanding in detail how galactic winds form and how powerful they are helps us to put together a map of the evolution of galaxies. Currently, there are many things not understood. For example, we do not know why nearby galaxies seem to be sharply transitioning from healthy galaxies, which form at least one star per year, to dead galaxies, with masses greater than 30 billion suns that seem to have not formed any stars for billions of years. The answer to problems like this lies with understanding not just the overall picture of the galactic winds within a galaxy, but also the dynamics of individual regions within galaxies. 
This is a difficult task, as it requires observing regions only a couple of hundred light years in size, within galaxies tens of millions of light years away. A team of astronomers working with a range of instruments, including the ATACOM Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, the Very Large Array, and a number of optical and X-ray telescopes, have been working to understand the galactic wind within a nearby galaxy called NGC 253. NGC 253 is a starburst galaxy, meaning it is producing far more stars per year than would typically be expected and has been observed to contain a substantial galactic wind driven not by a supermassive black hole or supernovae, but primarily by a host of young, massive stars. The team's analysis focused on a small region near the centre of NGC 253, and what they observed was a flow of material travelling at hundreds of kilometres per second, carrying away the mass of nine suns per year. However, the research found that it was highly likely that the majority of the mass carried away will not fully escape the gravitational grip of NGC 253, but instead become trapped within wispy clouds spread throughout the halo that surrounds the galaxy. The significance of this is that even if NGC 253 ejects all the material needed to form new stars, which at its current rate it will within a billion years, the mass that becomes trapped in the halo may slowly reincorporate itself into the disk of NGC 253 and start a new round of star formation in the distant future. Thanks for that, Stuart. And now onto the main interview. It's rather exciting because it's one of our own PhD students, Dan Thornton, who has a first author science paper, so it's in a very prestigious journal, and Christina interviewed him about intergalactic radio bursts that are seen once and then never again. I'm joined now by Dan Thornton, who is, of course, from the Java Bank Centre for Astrophysics. Hello. Hello. You're the first author on a science paper that was released in July called A Population of Fast Radio Bursts at Cosmological Distances. So can you tell me what a fast radio burst is? Well, a fast radio burst is um, something that was first published in 2007 under the name of the Lorimer Burst. So that was the name of the uh, of the person who wrote that paper. We've sort of renamed them because we found quite a few more of them, so they need to have a, a proper name. Um, we went for fast radio burst, kind of like gamma ray burst. They're very narrow, single pulses of radio waves, about a few milliseconds long, that we've uh, discovered with using the Parkes radio dish in Australia. Okay, so what was it you were searching for initially that sort of led to this discovery? Well, we found them in our in our survey called the, the High Time Resolution Universe Survey, which is primarily for pulsars, but we were also searching for these radio transients. We weren't sure we were going to find them because lots of people thought that perhaps the Lorimer burst was a piece of RFI or radio frequency interference, but we were searching for them. So yeah, primarily it was for pulsars, but also for radio transients. And so that's what our search pipeline was really looking for. Okay. Is there any, are there any theories as to how these are actually formed? What causes them? Uh, there are some theories, but there's not a lot of data to kind of back up those theories. So a lot of people eat even as we speak in the last month or so, there have been quite a few papers people have written about how these may be generated. We think they're probably cataclysmic events, which means they won't repeat, so they're not like a pulsar. Probably not something spinning, but something exploding, so they only happen once, or they appear to only happen once. Whereabouts are they? Uh, well, that's kind of why the paper's been so interesting, because they appear to come from so far away. So as as pulsar astronomers at Jodrell Bank, we basically deal only with things in our own galaxy. We've only ever found pulsars within the Milky Way and globular clusters surrounding the Milky Way. But these appear to come from um, approximately a million times further away than the size of the Milky Way. So these are what we call cosmologically significant in that... So these radio bursts um, appear to have come from halfway back to the beginning of the universe, so approximately 7 billion years ago. That's really far, really long ago. That is really far. (laughs) So are there any counterparts that you see? Because obviously you were looking at one... What frequency were you looking at? Uh, Well, we're looking with Parkes Radio Telescope and our survey goes from 1.1 gigahertz to 1.5 gigahertz approximately. So pretty standard sort of radio frequencies. A lot of pulsar astronomy is done at those frequencies. That's hence the reason we do the survey. We we have tried to find associated triggers from from, uh, things like SWIFT, so gamma rays, X-ray transients... SWIFT is a gamma-ray telescope, which is a satellite that is searching all the time for uh, for gamma-ray bursts. And so you may expect that a cataclysmic event like a, a gamma-ray burst 
may have an associated sort of radio burst, uh, but we haven't seen that, or at least we haven't. It's possible that they happened, but they were too far away for Swift to detect. So that's a possibility. But no, we haven't detected any counterpart. How do you know specifically that they definitely aren't part of the galaxy or from something in the solar system or anything like that? Well, we use this... Well, the main thing we use is this characteristic called the dispersion. So as radio waves propagate through charged material, free electrons, which actually occur in the interstellar medium, so the space between the stars, the hydrogen is ionised by the light from the stars, um, so the electrons are free. And that means that the lower frequency radio waves travel slower than the high frequency radio waves. So if a pulse starts at the same time at all frequencies, then by the time it gets to the Earth, it's travelled so far that the lower frequencies arrive slightly later. So you're looking at all these different frequencies and you see that it's kind of uh, arrives at different times. Exactly, it spreads out, so you see this characteristic sweep across the observing band, which in our band is about one second across our 400 megahertz for these bursts. And we know of around 2,000 pulsars, and we've been able to to map out the uh, the distribution of the free electrons in our own galaxy. And so for a given direction in our galaxy, we know what the maximum dispersion we might expect from that direction is. And so if we see something with a a vastly higher quantity of dispersion in that direction, then there must be some other source of that dispersion. So in the direction of the four bursts that we have in our paper, the Milky Way can only account for about 3 to 6% of the the dispersion that we observe. So really, there's an enormous amount of dispersion coming from a different source. And... We think that the the intergalactic medium, so the space between the galaxies, is also ionised, but there's much less stuff. So there's m- the density of electrons is much, much lower. So for a given amount of dispersion, you have to go a lot, lot further. And if you do the calculation, the sort of cosmological calculation of how many free electrons there should be, then you can calculate the probable distance, although there are some quite large uncertainties, but it does appear that they are quite far away. But hopefully some, one of the things we'll be able to do in the future when we find more of these things is if we can associate them to a real galaxy, perhaps an optically identified one, then we can measure the true redshift, and that would really help us to, to figure out just the density of those electrons between the Earth and that other galaxy. Cool. Um, how many of them have you actually found? Uh, so the first one was found in... Two, well, it arrived at the telescope in 2001, it was published in 2007, and then we present four more in this paper, and then actually since this paper there's been a couple more, but I can't talk about those. But So there's kind of like a handful of them that exactly, have been found. Yeah, yeah. Are they kind of all in the same general area of the sky, or are they all sort of spread out? Well, we found them in the part of our survey that doesn't point towards the galactic plane, and that's probably one of the reasons that our survey has found them, because pulsar surveys in the past have always concentrated around the Milky Way, um, because that's because pulsars are located in the, in the Milky Way, so to maximise your return, you concentrate your survey there. But our survey has surveyed the whole sky that's available to parks, so everything it can see, and they seem to be randomly distributed. There's, there seems to be no pattern. So there's no clustering at all that you can see so far? No, from... Not that we can measure, no. They just seem to be... It seems completely random. Okay. Interesting. Well, how long did these, a- these bursts actually last for? Well, the width of the pulse, they appear to be between 1 and 6 milliseconds. So very, very short. But then the dispersion spreads them out to be about one second long across the band. But we can correct for that so they go down to just a few milliseconds. And so because they're so narrow and they're so bright, you can infer that they're probably, they probably come from what's called a coherent mechanism. So a bit like how laser light is produced. And this means that you can limit the, uh, the size of the emission region. So from where they actually come from. So given that they're only a few milliseconds across, we can say that they probably come from a region that's only a few hundred kilometres across. So really small object. So they come from a really, really compact object. And so that tells us that they probably don't come from something like a supernova, because a supernova would be much larger than that. In general, its its scale would be many times the size of that. So it's a really, really small object, but that can produce something that can be visible billions of light years away. Yeah, so they're very, very weak when they get to the Earth, but they've gone an awful long way, so... If you calculate how bright they must be at the uh, at the source, whatever that may be, they're incredibly bright. They release more energy in a few milliseconds than the sun does in several hundred thousand years in total. Wow. So they really are very, very bright. That's an incredibly bright object. Yeah. So you said they this is sort of a cataclysmic event. Do you get more than one pulse, or do you literally have to just catch that single pulse? Uh, well, we haven't seen any, any repetition. 
one thing that I'm looking at at the moment is whether these could come from uh, soft gamma ray repeater giant flares, which some people think might come from magnetar. So these are basically gamma ray bursts, but that they have been seen sometimes if they're very nearby. You get one burst and then you get repetitions that get weaker and weaker. And people think that these repetitions come from the rotation period of the magnetar. And so if... Um, these radio bursts are associated with these kind of SGRs, soft gamma ray repeaters, then maybe we would expect to see, sometimes if they're very nearby, to see those repeats corresponding to the rotation of the magnetar. We haven't seen that yet, but it's possible that the second and third and every other pulse is simply too weak for us to see. Okay, so given that there's only that one pulse, you, it's pretty lucky to be able to see them. Do you do a repeating map? Uh, well, we're basically just tiling the whole sky. So we look at every patch of sky once um, for about 300 seconds. We're using quite a big radio dish, so our, our field of view is very small. So in a way, it's luck, but in a way, it's just looking for a long enough time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair. Well, so we can, we can... It's quite an interesting point, is that we've looked for an awful long time with a very, very small field of view, and we've seen a few. So we can calculate what the rate is. Um, they're actually hitting the Earth, even though we miss them because we're simply not looking in the right direction. And we calculate as about that as about 10,000 per day. 10,000 so, of these per day yeah, hit the Earth? Yeah, from somewhere in the sky, 10,000 of these every day are hitting the Earth. And no one sees them because no one's telescope is... Well, it's unlikely that their telescope is pointing in the right place at the right time. Wow. That's a lot of those bursts, just every single day. So Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Another uh, an interesting fact that I uh, I worked out for someone else was that Parks would have to observe for a hundred thousand years to collect enough energy from fast radio bursts uh, to have the same kinetic energy as a flying mosquito. So, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you talked about um, sort of the future of these fast radio bursts. Kind of, can you tell us a little bit more about any plans that there are at the moment? Well, yeah, we're developing plans to try and follow up these as quickly as possible, possibly with optical, ground-based optical telescopes and, uh, and X-ray telescopes and possibly to see if there's any gamma-ray bursts. W- one of the main things we're working on, actually, is trying to detect these as soon as possible after they happen. So I discovered these bursts in archival data, so they'd actually occurred approximately a year before I found them. What we have running at the moment and it's brand new, is a detection system that detects them within a few seconds of them happening. So hopefully we can then pass these cues out to other astronomers around the world, and they can then immediately train their their telescopes onto the same point in the sky. Um, And hopefully, well, A, we'll be able to find out whether there is an optical counterpart or an X-ray counterpart, and B, those telescopes will be much much more accurate in their position estimation. So our field of view um, with Parkes has several galaxies within it, so maybe tens of galaxies, 10 to 50 galaxies within that field of view. So it's basically impossible for us to tell which galaxy it came from. But with an optical detection, they would be able to say, well, it might be quite difficult to figure out which optical burst it is, but if they can, then they should be able to localise it to a specific galaxy. If we can do that, then we can uh, figure out what the redshift of that galaxy is and then figure out the, uh, the baryon content of the universe. Brilliant. <laughs> That's awesome. You said that you were working on something that would sort of detect them as they happen. Is that an automatic thing? So it would be a computer program that would kind of flag it? It's an automatic thing up to a point, but we we still need some human intervention because the radio frequency interference around parks is can be quite strong. Is that from mobile phones and stuff? Uh, Mobile phones, there's a radar, there's actually an electric fence um, that's keeping some sheep in a field that can sometimes cause some kind of interference. So there's some human intervention at the moment, and because it's very, very early days, so basically we haven't put any cues out to other astronomers yet, we want to make sure that we don't cry wolf too many times. So when we put something out, we want to be quite sure that it is what we say it is. So we're not going to let the computer do that just yet. Yeah, so you you need to be be absolutely certain. Yeah. Yeah. So, but as our software develops, that will be eventually be the the goal. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for telling us all about these fast radio bursts and wish you the best of luck for the future of it. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for that, Christina. And now we get on to that part of the show where we fit in everything that we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. So, George, do you want to go first? 
Yes, so the Atacama Large Millimeter Slash Submillimeter Array, or ALMA, put out a press release uh, earlier this month. Now, ALMA is a millimeter and submillimeter telescope in Chile that has been performing science observations for about a couple of years now, and it's been producing revolutionary work in submillimeter and millimeter astronomy. And this is another first from the uh, telescope. Uh, the telescope has, for the first time, uh, found uh, a ring of ice around another star. This is called a snow line. The star where this was, um, where the snow line was found, is TW Hydra. It's at a distance of 175 light years in the constellation Hydra, and the ice that Alma found is carbon monoxide ice, or CO ice. Now, Alma did not image the carbon monoxide ice itself. The problem with that is that astronomers see carbon monoxide in gaseous form in a lot of other places in the universe, such as in the airstorm medium and in gas disks around other stars. So you can't look at CO and immediately say that you're looking at ice. Instead, what Alma looked at was a different chemical with the chemical abbreviation N2H+, also called diazinellium. I that name. The special thing about N2H+, is that it can only coexist with CO in an ice form when N2H plus is mixed with CO gas, it's easily destroyed. So in finding a ring of N2H plus around TW Hydra, astronomers were fairly certain that they had found a snow line around this star. So why is there a ring of material around the star? Is it a very young star? Would we expect there to be planets in the future there? TW Hydra is a protostellar object, and uh, when you look at both protostellar objects and when you look at fully formed solar systems, such as our own solar system, you will find that uh, as you go further away from the central star, that you will have different ices form. At nearby radii, uh, in the solar system, this would be the radius of Jupiter, you would have ice form out of water. Then you would have ice form of carbon dioxide further out. And then methane, which in our uh, solar system would be about the distance of Neptune. And then beyond that, you would have carbon monoxide form. The reason why this discovery is so important is, first of all, um, it helps us understand how planets form around stars. Astronomers have theorized, uh, mainly by looking at our own solar system and working with models, that we should expect a lot of this ice to form in uh, around these snow lines, uh, around protostellar objects. When you form this ice, it's extra material to form planets and uh, other objects as well. And the ice also helps to um, uh, make the material more sticky and to make the material stick together. So it becomes easier to build up planets from... Uh, individual dust grains as well. The other special thing about CO ice in particular is that it's needed to form methanol. And methanol it can be used to form more complex organic molecules and can eventually lead to the formation of life. Wow. So Alma is watching the solar system in formation, in the process of formation. Oh yes, and uh, we expect Alma to be able to do lots of this type of thing in the future when it becomes fully operational. Not that we're biased towards it, obviously. Oh, no. <laughs> George works on Alma, so we can forgive him the bias. But the array is still being put into place, isn't it? So how many antennae are there at the moment? It, most of the antennas are at the side at the moment, but only about half are fully operational for uh, astronomical observations at any given time. So there's a lot to look forward to still in the next couple of years. So Mel, what have you got? Also, oh, my story this week is on uh, neutron stars, specifically in binary systems and what happens when they merge. So scientists at the Albert Einstein Institute in Potsdam 
have been carrying out numerical simulations on neutron star mergers. Maybe we should explain what a neutron star is, just in case. I mean, it's not just a couple of rocks banging together, right, when two neutron stars merge. Oh, okay, true. So um, a neutron star, it's the core of a, of a dying star. Um, it's incredibly densely packed, only about 12, 12 miles across, and um, it has a magnetic field around it. And sort of if you imagine... It's almost a perfect circle. So if you imagine the Earth and you imagine mountains on on the Earth, the sort of highest equivalent you'd have on a a neutron star is something of a couple of millimetres high. Right, so scientists have been carrying out these numerical uh, simulations on when these neutron stars merge. Um, And for the first time, they've seen instabilities that would lead to the formation of giant magnetic fields and some of the most energetic explosions the universe has ever seen. So when two neutron stars in a binary system merge and collapse into a black hole, um, they, sometimes they emit a gamma ray burst. And we've observed such bursts uh, with satellites like the XMM, Newton and Fermi. And these bursts, uh, they typically release the same amount of energy in a second as our galaxy does in a whole year. Wow. Yeah, so scientists have been thinking for a long time about uh, the mechanism you would need to release such a, a large burst of energy. And they believe it's uh, an enormously strong magnetic field. Um, but the neutron stars themselves that have a magnetic field associated with them, but not remotely as strong as these enormous magnetic fields that they're um, imagining would cause this burst. So how do these two objects end up producing such a large magnetic field? Well, people think it's, it's due to an idea known as magneto-rotational instabilities. And this is the idea that um, the neutrons uh, have sort of a plasma, so it's a very hot mesh of protons and electrons. And when they start to merge, um, these plasmas are um, merging with each other, but they're rotating in different directions at different speeds, and this causes an underlying turbulence um, which can like massively amplify the magnetic field present. So you can get this enormous um, magnetic field, very unstable, and eventually the system collapses into a black hole. But so scientists have managed to see this for the first time in these simulations that they've, they've done at um, the Albert Einstein Institute. And this is not only interesting for neutron star mergers, um, but also there are other scenarios where you would have this merging plasma like the accretion disk of a black hole. And so being able to study uh, this particular um, magnetorotation instabilities would tell you about um, other astrophysical scenario other than uh, neutron binary mergers. Which might make gamma ray bursts, I guess. Yes. Because we've been seeing these these bursts for a long time. They're like very, very high frequency photons. And that suggests that these bursts are coming from something with really, really high energy. Mm-hmm. But we don't really know exactly where they come from still after a long time. So it's really interesting that that could be... It could be one or maybe explaining several of the scenarios where they might come from. Yeah. And there are still other scenarios, too, that could uh, produce gamma ray bursts, such as um, I've heard uh, frequently about uh, supernova uh, producing gamma ray bursts if the energy just happens to be beamed uh, towards the Earth, for example. Yeah. It could be that all, all of these things produce gamma ray bursts, it's, and that we just can't tell them apart quite yet. Yeah. These simulations must be amazingly complicated because doing these kind of simulations with magnetic fields and turbulence are notoriously very, very difficult. So it's really interesting they found this kind of phenomenon which can amplify the magnetic field. Yeah, so I mean, the idea has existed um, for a long time, but it's the complexity of, this, of the simulations means that it hasn't actually been, been modelled and shown until recently. But the, the concept uh, of this... Uh, enormous magnetic field being behind these bursts and the idea that maybe there would be instabilities has been proposed um, but this is the first time they've managed to yeah, actually simulate it. I like the idea that some of these gamma ray bursts are two neutron stars banging together and a black hole being born. That's cool. Yeah. I just like the intense magnetic field idea. <laughs> well it really is very intense because a, a neutron star on its own has a magnetic field that's trillions of times stronger than the Earth's. And you're saying that's small compared yeah. to what's required to produce it. I was very interested when I first read uh, this, and they were like, now that's obviously far too small to explain this magnetic <laughs> field. And I was like, really? Because it's huge compared to, yeah. Well, my odd name by comparison is going to be very close to home after the ones that we've just heard about. It's, uh, it's the comet Ison, um, which you might have heard of because it's a comet that's going to be coming very close to the sun in the next few months in the autumn if you're in the northern hemisphere spring if you're in the southern hemisphere and what has happened is that this has been imaged by 
the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is an infrared telescope, and there's a really nice picture where they're actually showing the tail of the comet, the coma, um, and they're able to say roughly how much stuff is coming off the comet at the moment. Um, this happens because an object like Ison is what they call a dirty snowball, so it's made of various ices and uh, rock, um, it hangs around for a long time in the outer solar system, and then something puts it onto an orbit that takes it very, very close to the sun. Uh, and when it arrives near the sun, uh, it starts to melt. And that's what gives you this tail. And in the case of Comet Ison, they've been able to say that the tail is currently about 300,000 kilometers long, which is pretty uh-huh. big. I like that because it's one light second. So the light from the one end of the comet takes a second to get to the back of the tail. Anyway, it's currently 500 million kilometers away from the sun. So it's a few times further away than the Earth is. And apparently, according to the images from Spitzer, it is probably giving out about a, a thousand tons of carbon dioxide gas per day and about 50,000 tons of dust. But apparently they can't be completely sure it's carbon dioxide. It could be various different gases. There's uh, things like ammonia and methane and so on. But based on the temperature, I think it is now, they think that the carbon dioxide ice is starting to melt. Um, And as it comes closer still, around about the time when we're recording this, um, it should start actually going above the temperature of ice and uh, and ice should start melting into water and coming off it as well. So it's just interesting because all these comets, they give us, they tell us something about the composition of the solar system and, as they always say, the fundamental building blocks of, our, of the planets in the solar system way back four and a half billion years ago. However, they're not able to say whether Ison is going to be visible in the night sky, which is what everyone's hoping in a few months' time. Is so, that dependent on whether or not it melts? First? Yeah, it's how much it melts and how reflective it is as it does so. I see. So as it gets close to the sun, it will get brighter, um, and it's going to apparently pass within 1.16 million kilometres of the sun on November the 28th, and it's that's known as a sun-grazing comet because it's so close to the sun that it may or may not come out the other side. So it could be completely destroyed, or it could uh, re-emerge from its close approach and fly off into the outer solar system again. These should all be cocktail names. The Dirty Snowball and the Sun Grazer. <laughs> I bet they are. I bet somebody's made them somewhere, and if not... Um, we'll have to make them up ourselves. So we don't know how bright Comet Ison is going to be in the sky in a few months, but to tell us what you can see in the August night sky in the Northern Hemisphere, here's Ian Morrison. The night sky, August 2013. At least we don't have to wait up quite so long at night for it to get dark. And when it does so, we have one of the most beautiful regions of the sky over there and fairly high in the south. Vega the star in Lyra the Lyre, Deneb the bright star in Cygnus the Swan, and Altair in Aquila, another two. Those three bright stars are making up what's called the Summer Triangle. If you take binoculars and gradually work your way up from Altair to Vega, about a third of the way, there's a fairly dark part of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift, and against that you might spot what's called the Coat Hanger. It's an upside-down, almost like a wire coat hanger. That's the thing to look for. I've also included in the highlights of the month a couple of other nice things to see in this region. There's the Ring Nebula in Lyra, and also the Dumbbell Nebula in Vulpecula, which is below Cygnus. And these are both what are called planetary nebula, because some of them look a little bit like small planets. The Ring Nebula is very small, you'd actually need to have a telescope to see that it really was a little smoke ring in the sky. But the Dumbbell Nebula is quite big, and on a dark, transparent night, you should be able to see it just using binoculars, as I certainly have done in the past. As the night moves on, Pegasus is rising, and up to the left of Pegasus is the constellation of Andromeda. And here we can begin to see, this time around, the rather beautiful great nebula in Andromeda, M31, the Andromeda Galaxy. And I'll say more about that in the next couple of months. High overhead, you can actually see Cassiopeia and Ursa Major, and they obviously are in the region of the North Star 
Polaris. Well, what about the planets? Well, it's not a great month for planets. They're all visible, actually, but uh, they're all rather low in the sky. Let's start with Jupiter, the giant planet. It rises about 3.30 BST in the morning, and so is visible in the pre-dawn sky, shining at magnitude minus 1.9. Its disk is currently about 33 arc seconds across. It will still only be, though, 20 degrees above the horizon, some 45 minutes before sunrise. So you may well need to use binoculars to pick it out well, but obviously please cease using them when the sun has risen. Following its conjunction with Mars on the 22nd of July, it will still lie within 5 degrees of Mars at the beginning of the month, but then gradually moves away. By the end of August, Jupiter rises some three to four hours before the Sun, lying between the feet of the heavenly twins, Gemini, and so will be far easier to spot. And then a small telescope should be able to image the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. So that's a morning object. What about Saturn? Well, that's visible just after sunset. It lies in Virgo. It's several months past opposition, so really will be in the southwest after sunset, 11 degrees to the left of Spica Alpha Virginis in Virgo. It actually will appear slightly brighter with a yellowish hue. Its magnitude remains pretty much constant at plus 0.7 during the month, whilst its angular size drops a little from 16.7 to 16.2 arc seconds. As August begins, it's just one degree away from the plus 4.2 magnitude star Kappa Virginis. It actually moves eastward fairly quickly and uh, will go from Spica towards Alpha Libri in Libra. The rings are about 17 degrees from the line of sight and we're now looking at the planet's southern hemisphere. Much of the northern hemisphere will be hidden by the rings. Sadly, it's at fairly low elevation, but a small scope may well be able to spot Saturn's largest moon, Titan, and just possibly Cassini's division within the rings, if the seeing is particularly good. Moving back to the morning, we have Mars. It's in Gemini, but moving quickly across the sky, moves into Cancer on August the 25th. It should lie about 15 degrees above the northeastern horizon, 45 minutes before sunrise, as the month begins. And so binoculars should be able to pick it up, but again, stop using them at sunrise. The magnitude of plus 1.6 remains constant during the month, and the angular size of just four arc seconds will really not allow any markings to be seen on its salmon pink surface. Mercury is also in the morning sky. At the end of July, it was at western elongation. It brightens during the month, from minus 0.5 to minus 0.8 magnitudes, but at the same time, sadly, it moves back towards the horizon, making it hard to spot. It will be lost in view from the middle of the month as it moves towards what is called superior conjunction, that is on the far side of the Sun, on August the 24th. Interestingly, Mercury passes 4 degrees below Comet Ison on the 8th, which is expected to be at about magnitude 13, so not easy to observe. But when they next come together, on November the 23rd, with a separation of just 4.7 degrees, they could have a comparable brightness. Back to another evening planet, Venus. It starts the month 32 degrees east of the Sun at sunset, and you'd think that would make it pretty easy to see, but the trouble is, the plane of the ecliptic is at quite a shallow angle to the horizon at this time of year, in the evening. It will only be about 11 degrees above the horizon. Its angular separation increases steadily to 39 degrees through the month, but at the same time, the angle between the horizon and the ecliptic reduces, so its elevation after sunset stays pretty much the same. In magnitude, from minus 4 to minus 3.9 during the month, whilst its angular size increases from 12.8 to 
arc seconds. Sadly, you don't really see any details on the surface. You can just see the phase, that is, the part of the surface that's illuminated by the sun. It's moving rather rapidly across the sky, from Leo into Virgo, and ends August just five degrees from Spica, Alpha Virginis. Finally, what about some highlights of the month? Well, perhaps one of the real highlights of August is the Perseid meteor shower, one of the best that we can see every year. You don't really want any moon in the sky because the moon's brightness will actually make it harder to see the fainter meteors. Well, happily this year, in fact, the moon will not be any problem at all. It'll be well seen on the morning hours, perhaps from midnight onwards on the 13th. But happily, the peak of the shower is fairly broad, so we have a good chance, and now we have at least two occasions when we have a chance to see them. The meteors are caused by debris left by the comet Swift-Tuttle as it goes around the sun. On August the 9th, Venus will lie above a very thin, waxing crescent moon. So about 30 minutes or so after sunset, given a low western horizon. A nice thing to do when there's a thin crescent moon is to see if you can spot what is called Earthshine, the part of the moon that's dark but illuminated by reflected light from clouds on the Earth's surface. It's actually a good month to observe Neptune with a small telescope. It comes into opposition when it's roughly nearest to the Earth on the 27th of August. It'll be well seen both this month and next, and I put a chart in the night sky page of the Joddle Bank website to show you where to find it. Its magnitude is plus 7.9, so in fact binoculars will easily pick it up if you know, of course, where to look. And it will rise to an elevation of about 27 degrees when due south, which isn't too bad. If you've got a telescope of 8 inches or more in aperture, and you have a dark, transparent night, no moon, then it's even possible to spot its largest moon, which is called Triton. I've never seen Triton, and that's my main objective later this month, to see if I can spot it. I mentioned Comet Ison earlier on. Towards the end of the month, it does become possibly visible at a magnitude of about plus 12, but it could actually be less than that at the moment. Um, on the 31st, the very last day of the month, it will lie just a couple of degrees above the Beehive Cluster M44 in Cancer. So that makes it a fairly easy thing to find. You'll need a telescope which of reasonable size, and as I say, you need a dark and transparent sky. We hope Comet Ison will become a magnificent comet over the next few months after that, and around the end of November to the middle of December are going to be about the best times to see it. It could be very exciting and will keep you posted on these pages about its progress. So, a bit more time to observe the sky. Do enjoy it. Thanks for that, Ian. And now John Field tells us what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere night sky during August. Kia ora and welcome to the August Jodcast from Carter Observatory. After sunset, planets Venus and Saturn, along with the constellations of Virgo and Corvus, can be seen in the west. Venus appears as a brilliant evening star near the western horizon. Saturn is much higher, appearing as a yellow star-like object in an otherwise sparse sky. Small telescopes will reveal the planet's rings and the planet's largest moon, Titan. More powerful telescopes should reveal faint banding in the planet's atmosphere, along with gaps and variation in colour of the rings. This object, more than any other, will get a great response from first-time observers. One of the reasons for this, I feel, is that the planet actually looks like what it does in pictures. Other objects tend to look less colourful than in photographs, and this tends to lead to initial disappointment. Jupiter, the largest planet in the solar system, is in our morning sky, along with Mars, and at the start of the month, Mercury. They will rise in the twilight, making a nice trio of objects, with Jupiter rising first, followed by Mars, and then Mercury. Mercury, however, will quickly move towards the Sun and be lost. Jupiter and Mars will continue to rise earlier each morning, but they will remain in twilight for the rest of the month. They will also separate as the month progresses. The two brightest stars in the west after sunset are White Spiker, 
the brightest star in Virgo, and below Arcturus, the brightest star in Virgo, he's the herdsman. Arcturus is the fourth brightest star in our night sky. It is a red giant, 27 times the diameter of the sun, and lies 36.7 light years away. Beaten booties is called Nakar, from the Arabic word meaning herdsman. It is a yellow giant star, about 219 light years away. From more southerly locations of Aotearoa, New Zealand, this star is not visible above the horizon. Epsilon Botes is a lovely double star, consisting of a yellow giant primary and a bluish white companion. When using a hundred times magnification or greater, they have an appearance that has led to the alternative name Porchorima, which means most beautiful. August sees the Milky Way stretching to the east to west across our evening sky. Along this path we find the majority of the bright stars of our night sky. In the north, to the left of the Milky Way, is Vega, the fifth brightest star in the sky. Whilst in the south, Canopus, the second brightest star in the night sky, can be found. Alpha Centauri, the third brightest star in our night sky, along with Beta Centauri, the eleventh, are high in the southwest after sunset. Sitting along the Milky Way, these two stars point towards the Southern Cross, the smallest of the 88 official constellations. Scorpius, our winter constellation, sits high overhead with orange Antares marking the scorpion's heart. A curve of stars forms the scorpion's body. Following the scorpion is another zodiac constellation, Sagittarius the Archer. When we look away from the path of the Milky Way, the brightness and number of stars rapidly drops off. Sitting about halfway above the southern horizon in the evening is a faint constellation of Tucana, Toucan. Alpha Tucana is a magnitude 2.8 star, about 200 light years away. Beta Tucana is a loose group of six gravitationally bound stars, approximately 140 light years away. Kappa Tucana is another multiple system consisting of two binary stars. The two exceptional objects in Tucan are the small Magellanic Cloud and 47 Tucana, the second brightest globular cluster in our sky. The SMC is visible to the unaided eye as a cloudy smudge in the sky. Although best viewed from a dark location, it is bright enough to see from many suburban locations as long as the moon is not too bright. It is a dwarf galaxy of several hundred million stars, about 210,000 light years away. With any small telescope or good binoculars, a number of star clusters can be seen in and around the SMC. Sitting beside the SMC, visible to the eyes, is a fuzzy star called 47 Tucani. It is a globular cluster containing millions of stars. This cluster is a stunning sight in binoculars or telescopes. Observations using the Hubble Space Telescope along with ground-based telescopes have currently failed to find any planets orbiting stars in 47 Tucani. This lack of planets may be due to the low metallicity of stars in the cluster, but one would still expect there would be some gas giants present. Another globular cluster, Omega Centauri, is well placed for viewing. The brightest globular cluster in the night sky can be seen as a fuzzy star to the north of Beta Centauri. Over the evening, the pointers and Southern Cross turn around a point in the sky called the South Celestial Pole. This point sits overhead as you are at the Southern Pole. As the Earth spins around this point, all the stars in our Southern Sky rotate around this point in the sky. A number of bright aurora have been visible from the lower North Island and South Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. We here in Wellington have seen at least four bright aurora, making it one of the better seasons. This activity may continue through into August. Part of the reason for the successful observation of aurora is due to better forecasting and the existence of social media sites that give real-time updates of activity. Late next month, Comet Ison will reappear in our morning sky, and it may give some indication as to how this comet will perform over the upcoming months. Thanks for listening in to our Jobcast, and the team here at Carter Observatory wish you clear skies. Thanks for that, John. And now on to the feedback. We have three postcards this month. The first postcard is from Isle of Wight. says, hello from the clear skies, Isle of Wight. Excellent podcast, very informative. Varied subjects which are easy to understand and follow. Ian Morrison's Night Sky is an excellent beginner's guide for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere. Keep up the good work. Regards, Terry and Linda Miles. Second one from Mount St. Helens says, Hello, Jodcasters. I was visiting Johnston Ridge at Mount St. Helens and thought of you when I saw the postcard, because I know you love getting them. Thanks for making a consistently great podcast, Matthew Geologist. And the third one comes from Alberta, Canada, and features a photo of a Tyrannosaurus Rex skull from the Royal Tyrell Museum. 
says, No bones about it. I love your show. I listen to it on the bus on the way to work. Chris from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I love the pun there. The postcard's no very pretty. Yeah, it's a Tyrannosaurus Rex in the classic kind of roaring yeah. pose. But it's just a skull. <laughs> Alberta's the classical place to find Tyrannosaurus Rexes. Okay. Alberta and Montana. Nice. Well, I think three postcards might be a record as well for a single episode. I'm yeah. rather pleased to And not that. one of them sent by us as well. So <laughs> yeah, no, we haven't, had to, we haven't had to bump up the numbers. <laughs> um, and also, I always particularly like it when people listen to the Jogcast on the way to work, because I like to think it sends them to work thinking about astronomy, which I think can only be a good thing. So, over email, Fergal Lochran sends us the beautiful thought that we are his missing dark matter, which should be a tattoo inside of a, a love heart somewhere. Someone should get that done. <laughs> and he's, he's living in Perth, in Australia, and he promises as well to send us a postcard. Uh, if we want a particular kind, um, we can ask him, or he's going to surprise us. Do we want a particular kind? I'd like to be surprised. I know what I want. I want a Great Barrier Reef one, or like something to do, something, something like some sort of deep sea creature, a colossal squid, please. <laughs> Can I have a colossal squid? Um, failing that, yeah, surprise us. And also, Lindsay Robertson um, said that she was looking forward to the July two thousand and thirteen Jodcast. Um, yeah, we were a bit late with that one, but we just wanted to make sure that you know you all still cared. So, um, <laughs> and that she's been really enjoying all the previous episodes. That's nice. Fergal also coined the word Jodfix, which oh, I quite right. like, which is when... He wanted his next Jodfix. Yeah, it's when you need an episode of Jodcast, and then you finally get your Jodfix. And then you can stop shaking. <laughs> On Facebook, thank you to Tony Angel, who was listening to the NAM special, and he said, I jumped straight to the interview with Dr. Jane Birkby because I'm an exoplanet's nut. And on Twitter, Daniel Carasone, or Carasoni, um, he said... The Jogcast was engaging because of the multiple voices in a fun, intelligent discussion. So th thank you for that one. Thank you very much. And thanks also for all the retweets and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. On the forum at forum.jogcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And of course, you can also continue sending us lovely posts. Colossal Squid. And the, the address is on the website. One more thing to mention. There isn't going to be an August Extra show this month. Oh. Too many people are on holiday. Sorry. But we will, of course, be back to normal in September. Yay! And that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to Dan Thornton for the interview. And the editors were Adam Averson, George Bendo, Mark Perver, and Christina Smith. And the producer was Mark Perver. So until next month... Shut up!